Hey everyone, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian, joining the studio today by Pastor Ross, Pastor Eric, and today we're in week four of our series that we're calling Culture Wars. We've been going through the book of First Peter in the New Testament, and we're taking a look at what Peter writes to the early church 2,000 years ago and how it relates to the culture wars that we as Christians find ourselves in today. Now, before we get into chapter four, Ross, why don't you just kind of walk us through where we've been so far in the first few chapters of 1 Peter? Okay, well, the setting of 1 Peter is the church is just about to undergo persecution, and it's starting to ramp up. It's under the Emperor Nero, and in fact, Peter himself is going to lose his own life to persecution within a couple of years of of writing this. So he's writing to Christians who are beginning to face this opposition from the culture around them, and in chapter 1, he sets out all the basic issues. He says, look, this is going to happen, but he, but he reminds them that there's a bigger picture, that we have a, bit, a bigger future, we have a different identity that God has set aside for us. And then in chapter 2, he goes into some of the particulars about how that might relate to our relationships. He says, if, you, if, if you're following Jesus, you have this identity, then, then the culture around you is going to be out of step with where your life is going. They're going to oppose our values and our beliefs, and he talks about how our neighbors might um, slander us. We talk, he talks about our relationship with government and how to respond, because government is often the source of the opposition itself. And then he wants to turn the, the tables a little bit in chapter 3. He talks about then how, is, how our marriage life and how our, our roles as men and women dictated uh, by our biblical identity instead of being dictated by the culture around us. That brings us to chapter 4, and so we, we feel this sense that this culture war that we're in, we feel the opposition of the values of the culture around us, and we want to do battle, but he's now reminding us in verse 4 there's something deeper and more fundamental that ultimately at the, at the root of the battle is an internal battle with our own character. He's addressing the war within. What kind of character are we going to live? Yeah, so the way we're reading this is almost like concentric circles. You know, we looked at the culture at large in the first couple chapters, and then we we sort of brought it in a little bit to the family. And then in chapter 4, at least how I read it, how we've been reading it in chapter 4, we see he's getting personal. He's saying, hey, look, if you, if you as a Christian, as an individual Christian in your society, if you don't win the war within, because there really is a battle that's being waged inside of us, not just outside of us, if you don't win the war within as an individual Christian, then we as a group of Christians, the church, then there's no way that we're going to together win the war in our culture. And so let's look at five steps today to winning the war within as a Christian. Again, if you're taking a look at this, if you're listening to this in your car on the way to work, we encourage you to pull up 1 Peter chapter 4. When you get to work, read 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be sort of going through that. In fact, Eric, why don't we start with reading the first couple of verses here? All right, starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had. And be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. I like the word he uses there. You know, our resources, you can find them at pursuegod.org. It's not peruse God, <laughs> it's pursue God, it's chase God. We want to be uh, diligent, we want to be intentional. And I like that he uses this word. He says, you're not going to spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires. A lot of people think about that when they think about their maybe their hobbies. You're chasing your hobby. You go hard after your hobby. But what, what we're recommending, this is what I see Peter saying here, is instead of chasing just your hobbies, chase God. Like be as, be as intentional about your pursuit of God as you are about your pursuit of the, the Netflix show you're into right now or whatever sports team you're into or, or even your kids, which are a good thing, but shouldn't be the ultimate thing. And so number one, if you want to win the battle as an individual, it's really about your priorities. It's about what you're chasing. Yeah. Pursuing God or, or replacing, you know, the things that you've, you've put in high priority in your life with God, I mean, that is the key to our faith. That's the key to Christianity. For me in my own life, 
you've heard on this podcast before that I'm a recovering addict. And one of the things that changed my life was taking, um, you know, all the intensity and the desire and the zeal and the diligence to, to go party and to do all those things that I used to do and, and using that same fervor to pursue God, it really changed my life, right? It changed it dramatically. And so I think that's what he's getting to here. But when we think about our kids and Eric, you've got the youngest kids in here. When we think about our kids, this is, this is the one that can be a miss for our kids because, because young people say it's just not that fun. I mean, it's not, why would I chase God? What's in it for me? It's not nearly as fun as chasing my, like what he's saying here, chasing my own desires. Peter is saying, instead of the anxiety that comes with chasing your own desires, he says, you should be anxious to do the will of God. Mm. How, like, how does that land for a young person? I, I think about my own son who's turning 19 here this week, and he said, Dad, the Bible is so boring. Now, my son loves Jesus. He really does. He loves Jesus. He, he's, he wants to pursue the God of the Bible. I'm, I'm proud of him for that. He's just being realistic. He's saying, Dad, how do, how do we get young people to want to read the Bible? How do we get, essentially, how do we get young people to want to pursue God when we have all these other options in our culture and in our society today. I don't know, Eric, is that just my son, or can you relate to that with your kid, no. younger kids? Well, what just popped up in my mind is what I've learned about having a teenager is, is that they, they love to argue. And so <laughs> I'm thinking about, uh, go back just a few verses in chapter 3. And, you know, as Peter's talking about live differently, you know, don't, don't go back into this old life or don't live the way the rest of everyone else is. And they might, you know, slander you or whatever. Well, in, in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. So when, when people look at you and, and you're, you're living differently and you're looking at other people's lives, and I think one thing that might excite some teenagers, I know it excites me, I, I know that not every person has it in them to be argumentative and be in conflict, but that's the, those words... That's where apologetics comes from, right? And so I, I think I try to spur my son on to like, hey, listen to their worldviews and maybe find opportunities to where you can insert a biblical worldview. And, and that might make it exciting for him. But uh, certainly it has been a challenge to try to, to influence or or push all of my kids or even as a pastor people in general to try to get them to want to pursue or chase God with 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 a fervor you know with an intensity like uh that that Peter's talking about well and I guess Ross what would you say to parents who are listening to this and it's resonating with them they would love to get their kid to listen to this but Maybe they're like, my kid's not going to listen to this podcast. He's got other stuff he'd rather listen to. That's part of the problem, right? How, do, how does a parent inspire a, a young person? Can a, can a parent inspire a young person to chase God when we, and, and then maybe not become a part of the statistics that we talked about in week one of this series, right? So many kids grow up in the church and then bail on it as soon as mom and dad aren't making them go to church anymore. I guess... I guess what would a what would your advice be to a parent who says, "How do I inspire my kid to want to really chase after God instead of all the other stuff that the world offers?" Well, the first thing that comes to mind is like, "Are you chasing God? Are you pursuing God in, in your or you know?" Because kids are really smart; they can see right through us, and they can tell whether you're just a church, you know, Sunday church Christian, or whether or not it affects. You know, if you're chasing all week long, you're chasing your recreation and your sports and your hobbies, right. and 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 you're you know you're just watching all the same things on Netflix that everybody else is watching and all the rest, and then that's a disincentive to them. They're going like, why? Why bother? You know, it doesn't really change your life. So that's a challenge to us as parents to say, do we have you know do we have the priorities? And is is our Christian life boring? 
you know, and so church, you know, kind of Christian life can can be boring if we're not on taking some steps of faith in our life, if we're not engaging some challenging issues in and sharing our faith and discipling others in our lives. They see joy in us. It comes from serving. It comes from getting outside of ourselves. Then they see something like, oh, you know, Dad came home and he was stoked because he had this awesome meeting with somebody about Jesus. Yeah, for us in, in our in our lives as parents, Tracy and I tried to do that with our kids, is not just allow them to be consumer Christians. I think so many families are consumer Christians. They go to church, they go to church for an hour, hour and a half, however long your service is at church, and then they go home. And that's basically the sum total of their Christian experience. Now, maybe mom and dad read their Bible or have a prayer life or go to small group, whatever, and maybe possibly the student goes to youth group. But if in every environment that you're ever engaged in spiritually is a is a consumer environment, you're consuming a product, then I think we we believe this is really why the Pursue God tools exist. We believe you're missing the point. And so Ross, I like I love your answer. I said, Mom and Dad, you need to you need to model it first. And then I would say this a close second to that would be to make sure that mom and dad, you're discipling someone, and then give your kids an opportunity to disciple someone too before they leave the home. And I think, according to Ephesians four, you know, Paul says that that when you do this, go read it for yourself, everybody. Ephesians four verses eleven through seventeen, he says when you basically in, empower regular people, which includes our kids, to do the ministry of the ministry of disciple making actually helping someone else pursue God, that's when you'll grow. That's when you'll mature. That's when you don't get tossed around by every wave of new teaching, which is kind of what the culture wars are all about. It's these other teachings that are more, I don't know, more self-centered, you know, that's more about my desires, my opinions, my, you know, feeding my ego, feeding, feeding my flesh. And so, of course, the culture is going to win out if the if Christians, including our kids, are only ever consuming something, then you're going to consume something that's that's a little bit more consumable, right? The world offers better consumables than what the church offers. It's just mm-hmm. how it is. Yeah, yeah, and that seems to be a little bit of the danger, you know, as we watch kind of the the wars, the culture wars seeping into the church, and then the church is trying to decide, well, how can we make this more pleasurable and exciting for everyone, right? Let's change and and tr- make everything as contemporary as we possibly can so that more and more people will want to come and sit and watch us, and then hopefully one or two of them will come to faith. I, I think there's a little bit of danger in that. As I read these words again, it says, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, and it talks about before that that Christ suffered... Christ denied his flesh, you know, he suffered in the flesh, and so in our faith, as we always talk about, we, the, you know, the doctrine of, of salvation, it's true that we're justified by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, right? So we're, we're made right with him, it's, no, there's, there's no works involved, it's at the moment of faith, you believe you're right with God, and you're, you're going to be transformed into a new person, you're going to heaven, but there's certainly some suffering and some work that has to be done in it as well. Like everything that you do, even the things that you desire uh, in your heart, you work hard for them and you discipline yourself to do those things. So how much more so then should we do uh, work that out in our faith? So let me get this right. So what you're saying, Pastor Eric, is the, the message to our kids is um, don't chase your own desires, but just be willing to suffer. And that's and that's better than what the world has to offer. I mean, essentially, that's what it's saying here. I, I never actually connected those two verses, but you're right. Verse two comes right after verse one, uh, strangely enough, and it's it's all about being ready to suffer for Christ in the context of a culture war. And then, when you have the mindset, the attitude of being ready to suffer, then you won't spend the rest of your life cha- chasing your desires. Right. So there is a little bit of. It's kind of it's going to have to be a God thing in yeah. our hearts and in our kids' hearts. It, it's a t- suffering's a tough sell, right? <laughs> is, I mean, yeah. and I think for a consumer Christian, suffering is one of the biggest obstacles to living the f- abundant Christian life. If you're a consumer Christian, you don't want to hear about suffering, and when it happens in your life, you're going like, "Oh, this isn't what I bargained for. This wasn't part of the contract, so I'm out." 
Right. So we really have to understand the role of this suffering has in uniting us to Jesus and in helping us to grow and become better persons. Ultimately, the, the end game of character, that's what we're talking about, and, and throughout the New Testament, uh, it tells us over and over and over again that, that trials have a pretty important role to play in us becoming mature and complete. Yeah, so and then we and then this move this kind of leads us into the second point starting in verse 3 Peter writes you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy so he's admitting that they enjoy it their immorality and lust their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols and he says in verse 4 of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. And so they slander you. And so, so number two, number one is chase God. Be as, be as intense in your pursuit of God as you ever were about your pursuit of any other hobby. But number two, what he says, let's just get even more specific, is don't plunge into, into destruction. He's using this word of sort of plunging into a flood. It makes me think of I went uh, whitewater rafting years ago with some friends, and, uh, and the, the guy told us the whole time, the, the guide, he said, look, I'm going to be the one steering. you got to listen to my instructions. And he says, if you fall into the river, he said, you've got to you know, give us instructions. You've got to keep your feet downstream and, you know, so that you don't get knocked out by a rock and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm half listening to his instructions. And then when I got thrown out of the raft into the river at the class four rapids, I thought, man, what did he say again? Right. <laughs> and so I have a personal relationship with this idea of plunging into the flood of wild and destructive things. And you need to know I survived it. Yeah. I could see there's some concern on your faces, but, but that's really what our culture does, right? That's what we're trying to keep our kids from doing is plunging into the flood of wild and destructive things. And Eric, I think for you, I'm sure this matters the most, uh, probably at a different level to you because you've experienced it and you're trying to keep your own kids from repeating the problems of your own past. Yeah, exactly. And and, and that's where I think point one and two kind of just perfectly transition. One transitions into two very well because we're saying discipline yourself, deny yourself, be prepared to suffer, you know, don't follow your own desires, but follow Christ, pursue God, chase God. And there's practical reasons why, so that it, it talks about all these these things that you do, so you won't live like this, so you won't, you know, live like some people do, that immorality, lust, feasting, drunkenness, wild parties, terrible worships of idols, and 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 it says that they they slander you when you don't do that anymore. And and what came to me, what came to my head was, you know, misery loves company. And so they're just bothered that you're not miserable with them because the reality is, is all of those things eventually lead to misery and suffering anyway. You know, they might mask themselves as, as pleasurable for a while, but eventually people who live like this experience consequences, um, natural consequences and even, you know, consequences that come from the hand of God himself. And so... I've experienced this because I've lived this way. I've been involved in, you know, wild parties and drunkenness and all this type of stuff. And it led to consequences in my life. It led to misery. I, I, it led me to bondage and slavery. I wanted to get out of it and I couldn't find a way. And, and it wasn't until I started doing the first thing, chasing God and pursuing God, that those things started falling away from me and I started to have victory and freedom. And so if I can teach my my kids and, and my friends and people around me, hey, don't even start down that road because it might seem fun now, but it's not going to lead you to where you ultimately want to be. And ultimately, I care more about their eternal destiny over their temporary pleasure. And so that's what I want to instill in my kids. So Eric, what would you say to the parent who has a teenager who they say, I'm afraid that my teenager is, is dipping his toe in the stream or he's right at the water's edge, or maybe he has started to plunge into that. Uh, maybe this kid's a 15, 16, 17-year-old just a couple years away from making his or her own decisions and, and mom and dad can't really do anything about it. What would you say to that parent 
I guess maybe the question I have is, is there anything that your mom could have said to you when you were at the water's edge that would have changed your mind? Uh, no. (laughs) The big, the big no word where there were, there was disciplines and, you know, yeah, that would, I mean, not to say I love my mom and, and honestly, my mom is the model of grace. I mean, she showed me God's grace in all this sinful lifestyle that I lived and she stuck by my side through all of it. I mean, that showed me the gospel because that is the gospel. Like I couldn't go too far to escape her love and and that showed me Christ's love and so certainly there was that but but the thing that I tell parents is yes do that <laughs> be be gracious but have a good balance of of uh discipline right a, a good balance of uh warning them giving them um parameters by which to live right and and so f- practically speaking i mean that means that we have to know who they're hanging out with we've got to uh, you know, ask them questions about things that we think could be a possibility, not just burying our heads in the sand, I guess, you know, just being more involved in their lives and, and saying hard truths sometimes. And ultimately, like you said, you know, making disciples out of them, which is work, takes work. Ross, would you say that you force a teenager to go to church if they don't want to? Uh, yeah, it, there's a, there's a way to go about it, but <clears throat> but this here, here's the analogy I use. Um, I'm not going to let my my teenager decide whether or not they want to go to school every day. Mm-hmm. If if I let them decide that, they would be a bomb and you know never get even a GD whatever. But so because I recognize that well, that's important to your life, and you might not like it, but but it's important. There's bigger reasons that you don't you just you know that are go beyond your immediate. Uh, gratification. And so I think the analogy of that is the same thing with church. There's bigger reasons, and, and it's what we do. It's what our, at our, what our family does. It's part of our way of living. And so while you're here in our home, you're going to go to school every day. You're going to come to church you know, with us as well. Yeah, for us, we one of the things that our that Tracy and I did with our kids, and, and by the grace of God, our kids never pushed back too much. They never said, hey, I don't want to go to church. You can't make me. I know that that's the story for some parents and their kids, and I know that's hard, and I can respect that that's hard. And you want to, sometimes you, you, you want to win the war, and you got to lose a couple of battles to win the war, right? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't force my kids to go to youth group, for example. Maybe that would be a good compromise is to say, look, we're going to church as a family. We're going to sit there together, um, and then we're going to go to lunch afterward or something like that. Do as much as you can to make it a positive thing, right? Um, I'm not a big fan of forcing your kids to go to youth group, personally. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's usually helpful. Um, but I do think it's good to say, look, these are the rules while you're in my home. What Tracy and I used to always say is, when you're 18, you can make your own decisions. When you're not living in our home anymore, you can make your own decisions. And, and I hope that you'll still be connected to a to a good Christian church and pursue God with your life, but we're not. So we always, I always encourage parents to do this is show them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, because we, we call it the fundamental law of parenting, which is that, which is this transfer of ownership. You're transferring ownership of your kid's life from you to them. When they were infants, you owned most of their life. They couldn't have survived without you. But as they get older, you're trying to transfer ownership to them, which of course means you're trying to transfer your values to them as well. And, and it's hard because you can't force them on them, but you're trying to transfer that, those, those values so that hopefully your kids will, will own them for themselves, mm-hmm. right? That they'll chase God for themselves, mm-hmm. that, they'll, that they won't plunge into destruction because they've heard mom and dad's stories enough or, or whatever, or maybe just because by the grace of God, God is sparing them from those things, which, was, which has been true for our kids' lives. And so then that leads us into this third thing. The first two are more about how you interact with the world. And the third one is, is gets a little bit more spiritual. Um, Peter says here to sharpen your prayers. Um, he, said in verse, he says in verse 7, the end of the world is coming soon, and therefore be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Right? So if, we, if we're as a as a people of God in the midst of our culture, if we don't 
prayer is just one of the spiritual disciplines, right? And Eric, you said earlier that part of suffering or spiritual disciplines are sort of part of being ready, getting ready for suffering, I think, right? So as a Christian, you should really sharpen your prayers, work hard at something that maybe, I know for me, maybe is not necessarily enjoyable at first, and it might be a discipline, it might be something you have to sort of force yourself to do, but over time, maybe this your prayer life can actually have an impact on the the culture war and your participation in it. Yeah, you know, if you think about the culture war, there's this, we talked about this external element of it, that the, the culture is opposed to our values and our beliefs, and, and people might then slander and, and reject us and so forth. And then there's the internal part of it, character. Really, both of those are totally dependent on God's supernatural power and work in our lives. And so to be able to, to, to withstand external pressure and to be able to develop the internal character, really they both require a deepening, growing relationship with God for that to happen. That's why this is so important in the middle of this context. So I can hear someone out there listening to this saying, I've always struggled with prayer. I don't really know how to pray. You know, I pray at, at a meal. You know, maybe I pr- I've prayed over my kids if they were sick. But wait, what are you talking about here? What what is a what does your prayer life actually look like? This is one of my favorite things to do with people that I mentor, is model for them what prayer looks like. Because I think it looks a little different for everybody. Um, and we don't always get to see what it looks like in our prayer closets. So can we open the door, guys, to our prayer closets and share what what is it what does prayer look like, Eric, in your life? What is your prayer life like? What are some tips you can give to our listeners? Well, uh, you know, thankfully, the guys in, that I'm in the room with here have both put a lot of time into mentoring and teaching me how to do practical things like spiritual disciplines. And one of them is, you know, I still pray with the PRAY acronym, the P-R-A-Y. You know, praise, start out with praise, and then I move into, you know, repentance and confession so praise, repent, and, th- and then I start asking for things, mm-hmm. you know, the things that I want, and then I yield to the, the will of the Lord, you know. So that, that's how I pray. And I was thinking about this, this verse, actually, you know, the end of the world is coming, so therefore be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Or another translation says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And I almost am thinking that it's, it's kind of getting at the idea, going back to some of those verses that we said, uh, live, live a disciplined life, be self-controlled, so that when you go to pray, it's not just when you need something, but that your life kind of is the w- honoring God in a way that He'll actually want to answer your prayers. And I'm not saying earning things from Him, but again, it reminds me, if you go back to chapter 3, it says, live with your wives in an understanding way for the sake of your prayers. So, so it doesn't hinder your prayers. So mm-hmm. I, I honestly take that literally, like I need to treat my wife good or God's not going to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so again, back in, in chapter 4, you know, I ought to live again with this this pursuit of God and fervor. I, I tell this this joke in, in recovery groups a lot, you know. my This is what my prayer life used to look like. It was, if I was getting pulled over, I was saying, Dear Lord, please don't let me go to jail. I'll do whatever you want this time, <laughs> you know, right? And those prayers don't work, you know. He's like, I'll give you what you need, not what you want, you know. Yeah. And so, so if we're living a life that kind of... Uh, matches up with our prayer, I think this is this is one way, I think, to interpret that. Well, here's another way to look at that passage that you're mentioning about how your relationship with your wife impacts your prayer life. Mm-hmm. Think about it like this. If, you, if your relationship with your wife was like what you just described with God, you only talked to your wife when you needed something mm-hmm. from her, and you, it was like a bargain relationship with her, obviously that's not a very healthy marital relationship. So maybe there's a connection between our relationship with God, how we see that relationship with God, and our relationship with our spouse. It goes both ways. That we get into this mode with God where it's not a relationship. It's a, it's a, 
transaction. It's a transaction. Yeah. And I think mar- just as marriages can be destroyed by that, so our relationship with God can be destroyed by that. So I like your prayer, your pray acronym. It's not just about the A. It's not just about the asking. I think a lot of young Christians or new Christians or just about to become Christians might think of prayer that way, you know, praying about bargain prayer, a transactional prayer. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter's talking about having a relationship with God that actually impacts your relationship with the world mm. so that it, it, is, it can outlast the trials and it goes deeper than these trials. Yeah, I love the analogy that you gave about the marriage relationship, and that's I've used that in prayer a lot in my own thinking, because um, it, it, there's two things involved. Sometimes I want to set aside dedicated time to, to talk to my wife. We have date night or whatever it is, you know, where we have, we, we're just going to sit down, we're going to talk about our life, we're going to talk about what's going on, catch up with each other, and, and really cultivate the relationship. And so I want to have that with God. So I set aside some time to do that. But at the same time, if my relationship my, with my wife was only scheduled, that would seem kind of uh, shallow, it, it wouldn't seem intimate, and so... I, I mean, I talk to her all the time. We're driving somewhere to a meeting and, or to an event. We're, we're hanging out together. We're talking about life. It's not like I say, oh, honey, I'll, I'll talk to you tonight at 7. Right. You know, um, but we're just talking about life as life happens. And so those are the two elements of prayer, I think, for me. There's an ongoing conversation with God in every moment of the thing, of, day, of the day, and then there's specific times set aside just to focus on, on our relationship and just to be with Him. That's good. Yeah, some of my best prayer times are not my scheduled prayer times. It's when I'm in the car, I've got a 20-minute drive somewhere, and I've just got some worship music going, and I'm just, I'm not even intentionally maybe thinking about praying, but I'm, I am praising. I'm singing along with the music. I'm worshiping God. Um, uh, there are times when I just feel conviction about, about an attitude in my heart or something like that throughout the day, and I have to repent during the day. And so, yeah, it's not just the scheduled time. I got to ask a couple more questions for our listeners because I'm sure they're like, okay, but you haven't really give. Okay, so you give me some good tips, but but you know specifically for the scheduled times of prayer, is it ten minutes, five minutes, one minute, two hours? Because I I grew up. I'll just be honest here. I grew up in a church where I and I read the kinds of books where it gave me the impression if I wasn't praying for more than an hour. And I just and that I wasn't doing it right, and so I always had this weight on me that that's what prayer looked like. And part of that was my pastor growing up. We, you know, I prayed. I went to like early morning prayer on Friday mornings, five o'clock, and it was an hour long. And he would he'd be in there and he would just be groaning before the Lord. And so that's how I viewed prayer for so long. I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but maybe the way you guys do it is wrong or right. How do you do it? Well, let me, let me tell you about the one thing that I think um, we've been most able, most successful at developing consistency with, and that's uh, the prayers that my wife and I have together at the end of the day. Um, before, we, before we shut out the lights and stuff, we, are, um, we have every night we pray for certain things. And so we've made it simple by saying, okay, Monday night we're praying for my son and we're praying for our neighbors in our neighborhood. Tuesday night, we have a different, some different things, and we pray for family members and missionaries that we support and other things related to our life. We pray for our church and so forth. A, a different, and, and, and we've been married for seven and a half years now, and it's like we just, it's automatic. We know Tuesday night we're praying for, you know, Alpine Church, and we're, we're praying uh, for her family and so forth. And we do it just very, very simple. We just take turns. So one of us will start. And we'll give thanks for the day and just kind of orient a prayer to whatever's going on in the day. But then we'll go into the list, three things on the list. She'll pray, and then I'll pray for the same thing, and then I'll introduce the next thing. And then she'll pray for the second thing, and she'll introduce the third thing. And then I'll pray for the third thing. Because we have to go back and forth, practically speaking. We have to go back and forth, or if one of us just goes on and on and on, the other one like loses interest. Mm. And so we have this little thing where top of the first, bottom mm. of the first, top of the second, oh, bottom of the second. I like that. A little baseball and, um, prayer. little, little yeah. baseball yeah. prayer, yeah. And uh, it helps us to be organized. It, you know, it's organized, but it doesn't hinder. I mean, we still can really pray with, with passion, emotion, and we can pray for whatever's going on in the life. So every Thursday night, we pray for 
um, her daughter and her and her hu- daughter's husband, and every Thursday night we we go, oh, there's some things that are going on in their life, and it becomes really alive and and um, relevant at that time. And then we pray for somebody that we support, and then we pray for uh, g- generically for friends, whatever's going on in the life of friends that the Holy Spirit brings to our mind. So we have a real simple. It's very simple. It takes us about probably five minutes, mm. maybe ten if we're really into into a bunch of things. But it's super meaningful. Mm. Yeah, I like what you said about, you know, being being organized and and doing it at a certain time but then also being spontaneous and as I heard you speak, I think there's differences in personalities with with all of us and I think um like with my personality, I'm more of a maybe spontaneous, not as prepared person all the time, right? And and there are positives and negatives about that and I need to push myself to be do the organized prayer. I do, I do pray every single morning, and I do it after my Bible reading. So that is the disciplined way in which I do it. Um, but when I hear you talk about, you know, the, the, the list, the intentional lists of things, like that's the one thing where I, I really do want to grow. Um, and for, so for a personality like mine, I, like I hate to actually journal and write things down. And so I have to discipline myself to like think through and write down all the things that come to my mind. If I don't write them down, then I'm, they're just lost forever. And then when I go to pray, it's however I'm feeling at the moment. But uh, I think we both personalities need to learn how to either be yeah be more spontaneous, and some of us need to get more organized. But for me, I yeah I do pray um, every morning, and 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 I am more kind of go by the spirit a little bit, like mm-hmm. whatever's really stressing me out in my mind at that time. I, and I've heard you say this, Ross, I think in when we've done sermons on prayer, like if there's something that's at the forefront of your mind, like maybe God wants you to pray about that right now, mm-hmm. you know, instead of sitting and worrying about it, that's right? Good. And so that actually is one thing that I've applied to my prayer life is if I've been tossing and turning all night about a few things that I'm bothered about, like Maybe I should pray about those. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know, and so I kind of whatever's going on around me, and then as I as as and then the, the acronym actually just helps me to stay on track with yeah. where I'm trying to go. I do think the acronym's been helpful for me for for decades as well. Well, I've always I've I've gone in circles with this. I've I'm my personality is like yours, Eric, and I feel like I need to switch things up quite a bit, and so I've had prayer journals. I've used sticky notes on wall. Literally, I've I've had like a prayer wall with different color sticky notes with prayer requests that worked for about six months, <laughs> which is great. Um, and now, the last couple of years, what I've used is I've used my task uh, my task lists, just right on my phone, just Google Tasks, Gmail. Um, you can create a bunch of different lists. Lists, and I use lists it's been really helpful for the last couple of years the reason is because i always have my phone with me one of the things that i hate is when when someone like if i'm at one of our campuses and praying with someone afterward if i don't write that down pretty quickly then i'll forget what we talked about Mm -hmm. and so what i do is i for every one of our campuses i have a i have a prayer list and so again you can do as many task lists as you want and then in in that prayer list I have all these little tasks. I just never check them off as completed for the most part. Um, and so what I do is when I'm going to a campus, you know, last week I was at our Leighton campus, I pray that week, I, I, I sort of focus my prayers on those tasks, those prayer needs for that campus is one of my things that I pray about. Hmm. And then for the next couple of days after I've been there, I'll pray for those needs for a few more days, and then I'll transition into praying for the next campus that I'm going to, along with other general prayers that, you know, family and and whatever, bigger prayers for our staff or relationships that I have. So for me, I'm with you, Eric. I I do feel like I'm more spontaneous, and I think for guys, in my observation, is that guys like us have a harder time with prayer. Mm. Reading the Bible is easier for me because it's just a little bit more straightforward. I know when I've done it. Mm-hmm. I know when I've done it right. <laughs> At least it feels like I know when I'm... I read four chapters today, <laughs> and I feel really good about myself. Or I read you know, a, a chapter today. But prayer is a little bit more nebulous to me, 
And I'm still working on, how, you know, what this verse says is to be earnest and disciplined mm-hmm. in your prayers. I guess what I would say to people is, well, what we're saying here is is just really sharpen your prayers. Don't let it be just kind of a side thing. I'm not very good at it, so I'm just going to... No, I think it's important to be disciplined in your prayers or you're, or you're going to struggle as the culture wanders further and further away from biblical truth. Well, yeah, just one last thing that pops in my mind is, is if, uh, if, if I don't pray, something's going to drive me to my knees to pray. That's usually what happens. You know, we're talking about suffering and trials in First mm-hmm. Peter. Um, we're going we're gonna to be praying whether we want to or not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you're full of faith, but if you're earnest about it, if you're doing it diligently, it won't have to be always reactive. You can be proactive about it. That's good. All right, number four, show love in practical ways. Verse eight says this, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. And then verse nine is what we really want to focus on, even though verse eight is the more famous verse. Love covers a multitude of sins. We could, we could spend weeks talking about that. But verse nine says this, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. And what I love about this is it's talking about the practical, you know, we can say till we're blue in the face that we love people, that we love the world, that we, hopefully you've learned that in this series so far, that Peter says, love your neighbors, do, do everything you can to try to, br- to be a light to them and bring them to faith in this culture war. So that's the great that's the kind of the big head scratcher in this whole series is culture war is, is, is not about being mean and fighting a battle and trying to destroy the enemy. It's actually trying to save the enemy, right? And so what I love about this is he says, share, here's a real practical way to actually love someone instead of just to say you love someone. Share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. That's good. Yeah. yeah challenging, challenging, right? Because we look at our home as a haven. We look at a you know, this is where we kind of hide out from the world and from the needs around us. Um, <clears throat> but this is, uh, there's so many needs. This could be neighbors, people who don't share the same values and beliefs that we do. Or it could be in the Christian community, you know, if we're, if we're really in a situation where the opposition becomes serious, then we're going to have a lot of Christians who have material needs around us because mm. the culture won't be helping. Yeah, well, I while you were saying that, I mean, you know, it almost it like gave me visions of seeing, um, you know, people in, you know, during World War II and and kind mm-hmm. of the the Jewish people needing to hide out, and there were there were people willing to open their homes yeah. and to provide for them and care for them and hide them when people were coming to look for them, and I don't know, maybe it'll turn into it that could. one day, but but certainly, you know, at the very um, you know, surface of this, it, I think it goes back to what you were saying about making disciples, mentoring people. This could apply there as well. Like, be willing to be hospitable um, to to people in the church, people that you can... How can you use what you have to glorify God, uh, to give to other people, to provide for other people, to, to build relationships with other people? Um, open your home. And so this could include having a small group and, and putting out, you know, donuts and coffee and refreshments or whatever, like, again, as the world is coming to an end soon, you know, Hebrews says we should be meeting more and more. We should be gathering together. Mm-hmm. Don't neglect doing it. And so show hospitality. Be willing to get, you know, let people use your stuff. One thing I've always admired about people, and I've never done this. I, I'm, again, I'm being transparent here. But I've noticed that people, and people have actually borrowed me this item, but I I've see people when someone's car breaks down or they need a vehicle, people actually let them borrow their one of their excess vehicles to drive around for a little while. And I, like, that seriously challenges me. You know, I'm like, wow, you know, that's that, that piece of machinery is worth, you know, thousands of dollars. And and it challenges me, well, how come I don't ever offer to do that? You know, I make these excuses in my head, you know, about, ah, uh, you know, they'll figure it out. <laughs> or someone else will help them or, you know, wh- whatever it is. And being hospitable, being giving, being caring like that is something that I definitely want to learn to 
to get better at because as you said ross it is it is challenging you know to be that way yeah that's why i think he says cheerfully mm. i mean that's so you could do it grudgingly and most of us probably do eric <laughs> you mentioned a car we actually lent, loaned our car to a couple that didn't have a car years ago and it was like the first car we ever had as a as a couple and then we got in and somebody gave us another car actually somebody gave us that car and um, mm. and so, well, not my car. It's ultimately God's car. And, you know, um, well, we lent it to this guy. The guy was, th- this couple, the guy was kind of heavy set. When he got it back to us, and again, the driver's seat was broken. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. and so, yeah, there's a, there's a price to pay sometimes. Yeah. There's a cost. I remember one time we were coming down from Idaho with a van load of pastors. We were coming from a pastor's meeting, and in the middle of Idaho, nowhere Idaho, we saw this guy hitchhiking along the side of the road. And I said, I said, dude, you know, we're pastors. How can we just drive past this guy and ignore mm. him? We, you know, we, we should be living this. That's so what we, pastors mean, driving We're driving past. right past, right? <laughs> right. So we picked this guy up, and I ended up, he ended up living in our house for two weeks, and... Um, he ended, he eventually stole a sleeping bag and a couple of little minor things, and you know what? Um, that didn't that didn't really hurt my life. Ultimately, mm, yeah. we were we were disappointed and kind of burned it initially. But looking back, you know, I don't you know I I lived fine without that sleeping bag. It, obviously, you got to be careful. We didn't know the guy. If we had kids in our home mm-hmm. or or right. at the time or something like that, we would have some you know mm. more care to that. But um, you know, like I said. This is kind of like what the Bible said to do, so I was just naive enough to, to do it. Um, and thankfully, God took care of us in that regard. But, it, but it's not always going to be easy. When my son was 16, we bought him a—or he, he, he inherited his older sister's car, and he drove that for a couple of years. Uh, and then we, he actually—eventually—we gave him a different car. I think it was another hand-me-down from his sister. I'm not sure— um, but I remember when we did that, we said, well, you can sell your other car. It's probably worth a few grand still. Uh, good good car, good shape. It was great. And we said, you can sell it and keep the money. You know, put it in the, put it in the bank and, or put it toward college, whatever. And he said, no, I want to give it to my friend. He had a friend who was saving money for a car, and his parents didn't give him a car. And so he did. He gave, he gave the car to his friend. He just gave it to him. I think he sold it to him for a buck or something like that. And you know what? Number one, I was proud of him for that. But number two, it was also interesting to think one of the reasons he could do that is because it wasn't his. Mm. It wasn't his. And now I don't think he thought of it that way, but it is easier to give away someone else's stuff than your own stuff. And and that's the heart of, of generosity in the Bible, right, is God says it's not your stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Ross, that wasn't your sleeping bag or your car. Um it's not your stuff. It's God's stuff. We're stewards of what he's given us. And I think if we can view it that way, then maybe we can do this more cheerfully, that we really can share our home uh, with those who need a meal or a place to stay. And so that's number four. And then we've just got one more. We're out of time. But number, number, number five is to use your spiritual gifts. In verse, verse 10, Peter says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them to serve one another. He said, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? And do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. And then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, all glory and power to him forever and ever. And so he's. it seems to me like this real personal stuff, this character internal stuff now moves into almost like okay how does it how does it express itself in the community of faith right whenever i think of spiritual gifts i think of the community of faith i think of the church and i think it's interesting ross i think you're the one who pointed this out is that the spiritual gifts he just gives them two main categories right even though paul in some of the other places in the bible he gives us this big long list but it's really helpful to think of spiritual gifts in terms of two things either a speaking gift or a helping gift. You know, a, a speaking gift might be one that's more obvious up on stage in the church, whereas a helping gift might tend to be more behind the scenes. A speaking gift might be one-on-one right? as well. It might not be uh, platformed as well. But to me, that's the easiest way to start figuring out what your spiritual gifts are, is just say it's speaking or serving, and then you'll go figure it out. But I would just say one thing about this, is that this has to do with the, the war within, with character, because... Serving others really is an important foundation for character because 
that's when it becomes not just about me. It becomes about somebody else. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, this helps. Again, this is going to help you build your character as you find out more and more what God has given you. You know, going back to the last point, um, it's almost like stewardship, you know, talking about God owns everything. He owns what we have, so let's take care of what we have. Let's, let's, let's be disciplined, as, as we've seen in this chapter, and let's use what we have for the glory of God, not for our own desires, going all the way back to the first thing. Let's not chase after our own desires. God did create us uniquely. He, we have a story. We, we have uh, gifts, talents, and abilities that he gave us when we came to faith through, the, um, through Jesus or by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit wants, to now, wants us to give back so that more and more people can come to him, so that we can help the community of believers. And so some, sometimes that is, I think there is actually a gift also of hospitality in, in a different part, mm-hmm. right? And, and gift of, of speaking. Uh, Brian asked me just before this podcast, he's like, you want to come do, you know, First Peter 4? And, and, and I said, yeah, I, I certainly don't have a problem speaking, so <laughs> I can talk. You know, this is, this is, and I love doing this. You know, mm-hmm. this is something that I, I'm, I'm being fulfilled in doing it. And as you said before, like, you know, pursuing God can be boring, not to me. Like, mm-hmm. when I get to use my gifts, right. how he made me, that is the sweet spot of life. Yeah. I love it. Because yeah. you're, you're not a consumer, right? You, that's not how you view your Christian faith. Consumers will lose the culture war, uh, but I think people who are really all in are the ones who are going to make it to the end. So that's First Peter 4. The culture war isn't just a battle we fight on the outside. There's a character war we first need to win on the inside. You know, these five steps, chase God, don't plunge into destruction, sharpen your prayers, show love in practical ways, and use your spiritual gifts. If you want to find the small group video to go along with this, the discussion questions for your family, your small group, or your mentor, you can find all of it at pursuegod.org forward slash one Peter. And make sure to join us next week. And uh, these guys will too. Ross and Eric will too as we talk about the last chapter, First Peter chapter 5. We'll see you then. <laughs>